listening to the Anthropocene, Sound and Ecological Crisis explores imaginations of the natural world at a time of accelerating global environmental crisis, in an era currently being defined as the Anthropocene, a geophysical term which recognizes that human intrusion on the planet's surface and into the atmosphere has been so extreme as to qualify our time on Earth as a specific geological epoch. Mapping out a range of eco-acoustic practices from field recordings to data and geosonifications, Anya Kangeser investigates how such practices seek to delineate, highlight, and slash or overcome, distinctions between natural and social, urban and rural, exceptional and everyday. This lecture was recorded on the 14th of December 2015 at Gertrude Contemporary. Actually, before I start, I also want to thank all of the uh, many artists who have contributed their artworks to this talk. Um, I'll be doing a track listing at the very end of the talk so people can see the different artists that I used. So um, I'd like to acknowledge the fact that they've given me permission for these works and thank them very much for allowing me to demonstrate what I'm saying through their work. Uh, and this geophone recording is from a sound artist based in the UK, Jez Riley French, who has been working with geophones for a couple of years now to record the sounds underneath the Earth's surface. And this was a recording that was uh, taken in Bristol, I think in 2013 or 2014. So I want to begin this talk by providing some very recent context for my interest in the theme of sound and ecological crisis. As many of you will know, the Paris Climate Conference, the COP21, concluded on Saturday in a flurry of idealistic promises, but very little in the way of concrete legal commitments for curbing emissions or repatriations for what they call loss and damages. Low-lying Pacific nations alongside indigenous communities from Canada, South America and Europe called for a cap of 1.5 degrees to mitigate as much as possible the simultaneous effects of drought, flooding, ocean inundations, food shortages and forced migration. Against the endeavours of politicians, prominent climate scientists contested the efficacy of non-binding agreements particularly the laxness of regulation around the production and extraction of fossil fuels, coal and oil. Kevin Anderson from the Tyndale Centre for Climate Change stated that while he had no hope that the Paris Agreement would deter catastrophic climate change, not doing nothing would be a sure guarantee of failure. Alongside the UN national and corporate meetings, NGO and activist interventions, ran a number of sound projects hoping to appeal to delegates and attendees on more emotional and aesthetic registers. One of these was Rainforest Listening by Australian artist Leah Barclay, and I quote, an augmented reality project that layers rainforest soundscapes in iconic urban environments to inspire ecological engagement. Listeners access the sounds via mobile devices and sculpt their own soundscapes as they walk through Paris. Another project was Listen Paris 2015, a conglomeration of global sound and music activities that took place on the 5th to the 6th of December with a tagline proclaiming, and I quote, you can make a difference while showing solidarity to Paris, 
and sending a positive message to the world leaders that our global community is listening. Your gatherings and social media activity during Listen will express that we are ready to embrace better environmental stewardship with a move to 100% renewable energy. Perhaps now more than ever, sound artists are publicly engaging a spectrum of political and social arguments on the fact of climate change. Alongside more direct forms of activism and organizing, sound is being used as a platform for raising awareness with the aim that this will inspire conversation and propel individual and collective change. Leaving aside for now the many aspects of such engagement that require lengthy discussion, such as funding, collective and long-term political organization, partnerships, audience aims, and the like, I want to specifically concentrate on how sound projects put to the task of climate change, frame imaginaries of the natural world, and what this means for understanding the world in the present moment and in the futures to come. The present is one in which climate change has been identified as the greatest environmental threat humanity has faced. While it is unclear how this will play out precisely, the contingencies of course being quite variable, it is certain that the Earth will experience massive changes, many of which will significantly impact upon human and more than human populations in very uneven ways. By saying that this is uneven, what I really want to stress here is how differential the front lines of climate crisis are. They are predominantly impacting on brown and black, economically stressed and geographically vulnerable communities and regions that have had minimal input into carbon emissions, used far less oil, coal and fossil fuels, but are the hardest hit by environmental consequences. The possibilities that sound brings to making sense of these processes are both affective and communicational. Transmissions of information through sound can act to connect bodies and emotions to geopolitical landscapes and events in intimate ways, inviting fascination and curiosity and leveraging moments of hesitation in assumptions of how the world is and what it is becoming. In this talk tonight, I want to look at some of the westernized assumptions about what constitutes natural and urban ecologies specifically through the lens of sound and acoustic landscapes, principally drawing on field recordings and practices of sonification, which is the turning of data into sound. I will show how sound can communicate on affective and semiotic levels to invite appreciation and understanding of the entanglements between human and more than human forms of life. This is because sound can render the imperceptible audible, and this geophone earth recording from Jez, um, which will be playing intermittently throughout this talk, I think illustrates this quite uh, acutely. These are sounds that the human ear is incapable of hearing in its natural kind of state. So this is a sonification of what it sounds like under the earth. So I'm going to be covering quite an expansive uh, ground to map out this argument. Firstly, I will introduce an idea of nature that is commonly drawn upon through particularly Western modes of thought as something unconstructed and removed from the social. An idea that is reproduced through sonic disciplines and practices such as field recording and acoustic ecology, often quite uncritically. I want to do this not to dismiss these kinds of practices, but to draw attention to the ways that such distancing may foreclose action on day-to-day -day registers. 
From this, I will focus on the notion of the Anthropocene, a way of thinking the geological epoch in which man-made activities have had a significant effect on terrestrial ecosystems. The Anthropocene as a concept is quite useful because it pushes to the forefront the planet itself as an active constituent within human politics, rather than displacing it into the background. Using practices of sonification from both art and geophysics, I want to propose the potentials that such sound-based modes have for the communication of complex information that may assist in the comprehension of planetary horizons. The range of atmospheric <clears throat> and biospheric issues associated with global warming and the contemporary iteration of capital and their present and future effects require experimentation and the adoption of practices of listening so that the complex processes and environments that humans are implicated within may be discerned. Given how much is at stake in the immediate recognition of and collective action upon climate change, given the devastating effects that uh, global warming has already had and promises to have in the near future, it is more critical than ever for attention to be turned to the task of radicalizing creative praxis. To conclude, I will emphasize the role that sound can play in inviting attentions and actions to what, towards what Isabel Stengers has called cosmopolitics, a politics of composition, of the future arrangement of the cosmos, in which the cosmos is understood as, and I quote, a hybrid assemblage of heterogeneous entities and relations that cannot be divided into nature and society and that has no pre-given form. Part one, nature against culture. Ideas about the natural world have been framed in opposition to the social and built environment. In contemporary Western cultures, nature has largely been delinked from human society. From oceans to forests, deserts to ice fields, weather patterns, animal species, geological and bio-organic activity, the natural has been typified by the non-human or the primitive. In popular stories across the global north, Nature has come to indicate a kind of peri-urban wilderness um, that is on the one hand typified by planned green spaces and green architectures and on the other that which is still wild or which has been rewilded. In most cases, <clears throat> nature, as Donna Haraway has pointed out, has been seen as, and I quote, a physical place to which you can go 
somewhere beyond the boundaries of everyday urban life. This refrain of the outside, the perception of nature as something out there, exterior to the space of the everyday, is fundamental to the ontological separation of social and natural worlds. And while this division is increasingly a contested one, it still remains highly prevalent within Western cultural, social, political and economic narratives. Found within this embedded idea of the natural is a moral standpoint. The natural has been, for the most part, associated with being virtuous and pristine, uh, also at the same time, unknowable, authentic, dangerous and untamed. As a place in which one can contemplate transcendental states, or an object fundamental to prior, less socialized forms of life. Especially in light of environmental crisis, nature has been mapped as a space of nostalgia, an unattainable other to which it is impossible to return or fully recover. In this view, the natural is framed as something that needs to be protected from humankind. Equally, the natural has come to signify a place of escape from the density of the metropolis, a geographical demarcation for a different temporality, a way of behaving, or a way of attending to one's surroundings and self within them. Within this trope, then, nature is understood as providing a largely passive and homogenous backdrop for the dramatic unfolding of human life. As geographer Sarah Watmore argues, nature is always a product crafted from desire situated as a mute and inert or highly anthropomorphized container or catalyst for activity. Whether as an uncharted terrain to be colonized, a resource to be extracted, a retreat from the city or an enclosed ecosystem or an act of God, the entangled relations of the human and the more than human are mostly hidden. The interplay of humans with natural environments and non-humans with built environments is seen as peripheral, obfuscating the constant overlaps that occur. This is why it is necessary to draw attention to the integrated systems that connect and intersect different kinds of environmental topographies beyond the sequential narratives of cause and effect. In the field of acoustic ecology, studies of biophony and geophony, that is to say biological uh, wildlife and non-biological or geological sounds, provide a way to demonstrate both typical stories about the natural world and their contestation. Proposes scientist Bernie Krauss, um, whose track Autumn Day in Yellowstone is currently playing, allows the observation of animal habitats and territories and the relationships of polyphonic sound sources within them, 
These sound territories are impacted upon by climate and weather, seasonal variability, temporal cycles, and more overtly interventional forms of industrial violence. What sound can tell us, argues Krauss, are the ways in which such processes affect the quality, diversity, and composition of animal populations. To this end, sound has been deployed to track fluctuations in wildlife biomes, from the effects of deforestation on the migration and settlements of birds, to the movements and density of whale and dolphin pods. And I'm sure that some of you have probably read about scientists using these kinds of methods to find out why particular whale pods are diminishing in particular kinds of areas and why particular habitats um, tend to have less kinds of species living in them now than they did 20 years ago. It's become more mediatized recently um, with the publication of Bernie's book called Animal Orchestra. The translation of knowledge from these soundings requires semiotic analysis. That is to say, the data needs to be read and made some kind of sense of. This, of course, needs interpretive frameworks, which are always informed by value judgments arising from wider social, political, cultural, and economic contexts, although scientific models would like to suggest otherwise. semiotic knowledges produced by sound data. <laughs> and Feld actually recorded um, quite a lot of recordings along these lines to develop this idea of acoustomology to try to understand the different communities that he was living and working in over quite a few decades. Acoustomology, defines Feld, is the potential of acoustic knowing, of sounding as a condition of and foreknowing, of sonic presence and awareness as potent shaping forces in how people make sense of experiences. While the technologies and methods deployed may vary, this use of sound as an epistemological device may be shared by the field recordings one might hear in artistic settings and also by the scientific recordings um, like those of Bernie Krauss that I played before. This requires a special kind of objectification of sound as a representational force. The developments of sonic epistemologies, however, are still relatively minor comparative to the history of field recording. The early recording of sound in environments began in the late 19th century with the invention of the wax cylinder phonograph. In the late 1940s, with the mass production of portable tape recorders, field recording became a more accessible and commercially viable pursuit. In his 2014 paper on sound, art, and geography, 
Michael Gallagher typologizes field recordings into a series of styles. One of these is natural field recordings, strongly epitomized by pieces such as Chris Watson's River Mara at Night, and this is quite a famous um, piece of field recording. The natural style of recording captures the vibrations of animals, plants, habitats and ecosystems. These recordings, explains Gallagher, are used as wild tracks and sound effects in television and film, for scientific research in bioacoustics and ecology, and by wildlife enthusiasts and artists. What these recordings aim to do, as much as possible, is erase the human element. This means editing out the sounds of recording devices and microphones, the sounds made by the movements of the recordist, the sounds of cars, planes, machines, and so forth. Further still, they erase the conditions of their production. The fact that such recordings are predominantly produced by middle-class educated white men who have traveled to a specific site and spent hours setting up usually quite expensive equipment in order to capture a series of acoustic landscapes. The recordings from such fieldworks thus strip the environment of its context, hiding the means of production underpinning the sound objects, presenting the recording as an unmediated representation of a given space and time. While the spaces and sites produced by such recordings have been, and I quote, meticulously constructed by hundreds of recordists over many decades who have all sought out tiny windows in time and space where man cannot be heard, this is not the impression that is given to the listener. What is thus painstakingly shaped is a conception of the natural that is pristine, untouched and thoroughly distinct from human intervention. <clears throat> the natural world composed through such recordings is a highly fabricated one, not only in the sense that it portrays inexistent environments by rendering static that which is endlessly mobile, but also in that it eliminates its own conditions of labor and production and the purposes it serves. The fact of this artifice is not entirely negative, however, nor does it detract from the impact that such recordings may have. For instance, a recent focus of recordings on melting ice caps, such as Katie Patterson's Vajaknakul, The Sound Of, um, which I'll play in a moment, have usefully illustrated the visceral and very tangible heating of the Earth's atmosphere, and as such acted to bring listeners closer to often unseen and time-critical events. Thank <laughs> you. 
So in this work, Patterson actually set up a direct telephone line um, to the iceberg where people could call up 24 hours a day and listen to these sounds of the iceberg uh, melting in real time. So she really tried to develop that connection. You could call from anywhere in the world. She really tried to develop that connection across all different kinds of geographies to what was actually happening at that point, something which people, I think, for a lot of the time are quite removed from. So this is what you could, part of what you could hear. Furthermore, recordings of what Timothy Morton calls dark ecologies, the more abject spheres of animal behaviours, such as Chris Watson's documentations of vultures feeding, help to reveal the myriad life cycles humans are generally not privy to, providing a counter-narrative to fetishised landscapes and non-human processes. And I'm going to play this recording quite now, um, uh, right now. For those of you that don't know it, what you can actually hear, I think there were nine vultures um, that Watson captured inside the carcass of a zebra. So he actually mic'd up the carcass of the zebra so that you could hear very clearly the sound of the vultures um, eating the inside of the zebra. And you can hear these strange kind of snorts and kind of exhales, and that's actually the vultures breathing. This is called Cracking Viscera. I think it's from Circle of Fire. the same way, conservationist recordings of endangered species and terrains, no matter how staged, develop, how staged, develop consideration of the world beyond that which is immediately apparent, and the impact of man-made activities on them. This is in its own right significant work, given the gravity of these impacts. Projects such as Bernie Krause's Wild Sanctuary 
seek to archive ecological landscapes over time, including those now extinct. So what Krauss has kind of done in a manner of speaking is created an archive of extinction now because he's captured so many sounds that are impossible to hear anymore um, that it's one of the only ways that it has actually been documented. And Krauss has been recording in the same kinds of environments for a few decades now, 20 or 30 years. So he's really managed to create this quite um, attentive uh, landscape of these different kinds of habitats through sound and how over time they have changed and a lot of which is due to deforestation. This is not limited to non-urban environments. For example, the London Sound Survey, which has been set up to archive historical and contemporary acoustic landscapes from around London, includes recordings attentive to the waxing and waning of urban sites such as waterways and animal species such as birds and foxes. <clears throat> 